When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and just before we begin our latest podcast, I just wanted to take a moment and let you all know that on June 10th, there is a live stream coming from Distractions Media, where we're doing a little bit of fundraising for our Distractions Media team to help some of our colleagues get to Gen Con, the big gaming convention down in Indianapolis. If you'd like to help them out, uh, you can do so by going to twitch.tv forward slash distractions media on the day to watch the event or you can head over to our webpage at distractionsmedia.com forward slash live stream all one word uh, where we have links to the donations and all the various things that are going on including the schedule and you can find everything we do at distractionsmedia.com Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode number 50, Legacy of the Old North. For weeks and weeks and weeks, to be honest, we have discussed the Old North, Erin Welsh, the Irhen Ogalath. Apologies again for my pronunciation. Better known to us as the Old North. These are the Brythonic-speaking former Romano-British or Romano-adjacent British, if you want to call them that, who lived from the River Tweed to the Antonine Wall, and a little bit above that in some cases. Many of our literary and historical sources mention these places, these kingdoms, and some of the people involved, and they have a lot of significance to the Welsh people in general because of the ideas around them about who they are what they bring to the table as far as Welsh history, and what they will be going forward past this point. In our story, in the narrative story that we've been doing, we've reached about 650-ish. And 650 AD, 655 AD is about the time when the predominant powers of the northern Brythonic start to dissipate, and we get this domination by Northumbria over most of what is then, or, well, the Old North, or what we would call Southern Scotland, maybe partially Northern England. So these would include both what we would call now Southern Scotland and a piece and bits of Northern England. Typically, these kingdoms were made up of four major kingdoms, uh, but Within them and beside them and around them are sub-kingdoms, much like Wales, where Wales you have Gwyneth and Powys in the north. In amongst them there are sub-kingdoms and smaller than that kingdoms, little fiefdoms and chiefdoms that exist within there who have responsibility and owe loyalty to the supreme kingdoms in and around them. Uh, Caragidion 
becomes one of these. Uh, we'll see this again later in the South when you have Guising and places like that, where they start to converge and become a larger organization, or they basically be, are assumed into the overlordship of a kingdom that is near them, uh, such as what will happen at times with the Saxons under Alfred, or with Mercia, or even to some extent with uh, what will what is Daphid and Doithbarth and Gwyneth, where they start to take over the lordship of all of Wales, or most of Wales, depending on how you want to look at it from that perspective. So let's talk about these kingdoms and kind of give them a little bit of historical explanation. Now, let's be clear and say that this explanation is very authoritative sounding, but not authoritative in reality. A lot of what we know about these kingdoms doesn't necessarily fit our understanding of what they may or may not have been. We can only go with what we know, which is, like I said, in the literary and historical sources. So what's the difference between a literary source and a historical source? Well, the literary sources that we have are based around poetry and the old bards of an era that talked about them. Now, in some cases, these stories we believe go back to the time period in question. In other words, the middle end of the 7th century, maybe even as far down as the 6th century. But a lot of others are are younger than that, and in some cases, our only evidence of them is much later, like hundreds of years later. So we don't have firm documented history in a lot of cases. Now, of course, we rely on Bede for some of this, and we especially rely on Ninius. This is actually an area where Ninius is very important because the history of Britonium gives us the understanding of some of the players, some of the storylines, and expands on some of the details. And a lot of people feel that's because he had access to old northern uh, documents that we don't have, or at least there is that feeling. Or possibly, and most likely, he had copies of the same sort of things we had, and either expounded upon them or expanded upon them, depending on the circumstance and situation. So, to break it down for everybody, there are the, the main kingdoms that we're going to talk about. Uh, the first one is Altkloid, or Ystrad Cloid, uh, which is a kingdom which was centered, or believed to at least be centered, on Dumbarton in Scotland. Um, remembered best as the kingdom now of Strathclyde. Uh, it wasn't Strathclyde at this time, and there is no historical statement that says that Altkloid and Strathclyde are the same place. And in fact, there is some argument to say that those two may be mutually exclusive, and it may just be the similarity of their name that, that brings this idea. Strathclyde itself grows out of uh, the pushback against Northumbria and ends up becoming the one survivor of all these kingdoms. In fact, it lasts until the 11th century when it's finally absorbed into what is the Kingdom of Scotland at the time. So it will be one of the few British kingdoms that actually makes it out of the pressure from Vikings, from Angles, from Saxons, and all of this, and even the Picts and the Irish, to survive to the point where kingdoms are actually a large kingdom instead of a small one, and eventually becomes a part of the larger Scotland. Uh, because of that, of course, it leaves the best legacy of, of Cumbric names, and Cumbric is kind of the descendant much like Welsh is a descendant of Brythonic, Cumbric is the 
Old North version of that. And so there is a lot of those names that continue to hang on and are very obvious when you see them, but they aren't necessarily older than that period. They may be, but we don't know in all cases whether that's true or not. The next one I would mention is Elmet. Elmet is based around Western Yorkshire in Northern England. So sort of like the Blackpool area, York, and sort of west uh, in that vicinity, down to about where Powys and Mercia met. Uh, it would actually have been a fairly, at least that's what we believe. I mean, in all honesty, this is from the description of the historical sources. There's not a lot of, the evidence that we have that it was that large comes actually from some of the naming rhythms, because Elmet remains an important name in the local communities. And so there is a feeling that, that it was reasonably sized for the time. It, of course, is beaten and defeated by Deira and uh, Bernicia, in other words, Northumbria, and becomes merged with them at the end of the 6th century. And in fact, it is argued that Elmet is the reason why the kingdoms of the Old North fight at the Battle of Cathareth to try and take back this area which was of strategic importance. However, one thing that is actually hotly discussed is whether or not that's actually accurate, that Cathareth was actually a battle that was strategically important and not something else. Uh, in fact, it's argued quite vigorously. According to Thomas Owen Clancy, it's actually his feeling that what we may be seeing is not a major strategic battle point that actually it wasn't that uh, Cathareth was actually that important or that significant, but rather it became so because it was a raid gone bad. And that at this time period, there was a lot of raiding going on and that Cathareth may have already been in the Anglican sphere of influence, if you want to call it that. So really difficult to, to kind of say that with any strength that this is so significant that it calls to the end of the connection between the Old North and the Welsh. Um, I don't know about that. There's a lot of historical arguments back and forward about this. Scholars obviously are not clear on where they stand with this at times because it it is vague. I mean, honestly, we're going in part off a poem, the, the Gadothan, of course, um, to kind of give us our understanding of this. But the reality of it is, it is an important location for a very important battle that they lost. Whether, how you define what that battle was, we don't know, but it was significant enough that it was memorialized, and it was significant and important enough that people were banded together to fight this battle. And that is one of the things you take from the Gadothan, is that this wasn't just a, a small raid. This was something that was planned, that was executed with the numbers, that sub-kingdoms were involved, uh, and they were defeated. And it caused a lot of trouble later because of it. Now, the other kingdom that we've just mentioned is Godothan. Now, the Godothan is in what's now southeastern Scotland and may have stretched as far as northeastern England, um, the area previously noted as the territory of the Vodini. Um, their capital is said to have been current-day Edinburgh. Again, keep in mind that all of these kingdoms are very flexibly described because... We don't have a good geographical location. We have, in some cases, we have a decent idea of where they are. 
We have some good guesses based on place names because place names will give us a good understanding. Okay, if this place name is here, that explains why they would be called to be located here because this is probably a, a situation where this stretched into their... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily circumstance and their control so you have the Gadothan is a big part of this period they now the argument is made amongst some historians that the the connection to the Vododini is actually very speculative and not necessarily accurate uh, the reason being is that uh, the, the the reason why they bring this this link is because of uh, Ptolemy who did the map in the second century AD which kind of defined what the Roman sphere of influence was like and not so Roman sphere of influence was like. So he went down and did a geography effectively of Europe and the Middle East and Northern Africa. And in the process of doing that, defined what the boundaries were, what the tribes were and all of these kind of things. But it, I mean, he's not terribly accurate in his descriptions. He's probably getting some of his information from other people, such as people who are coming from areas that are adjacent to or live near or heard somebody one day tell them about this. And so there is proof that, like, for example, his definition of the tribes of Ireland is very much off. So the feeling is, is that the Vodadini may not have been where he thought they were. Uh, in fact, Guy Hussel describes that the Vodadini may actually have been a part of a greater confederacy of Picts 
who then broke up towards the end of this period of time and in the process broke up into these names and then they became the Gadothan almost by accident rather than by design and it wasn't necessarily the Votadini that that Ptolemy knows that became the Gadothan of the later sub-Roman and early medieval period that group may be very different and another part of this group that's mentioned quite often and, and if we look back to our story about Kanatha uh, the Manau Gadothan is mentioned, but the Manau Gadothan is maybe a an incorrect statement. They may just be the Manau, and that the people that we're talking about are actually the Manau, not the Manau Gadothan. And the reason why we have Gadothan in there is because to give a geographic location for people in a time period later on, such as the ninth century when they're writing the history of Bretonium, uh they kind of put them adjacent. You know, these aren't the Mana from this area. These are the Mana near the Gadothan. And then it becomes Mana Gadothan. And so that confusion creates a, a misunderstanding. And so we've actually got a sub-kingdom called the Manau. And this Manau group defines kind of this idea that these aren't just, these kingdoms aren't made up of, of one united nation. They may be made up of little tiny nations which kind of control them. And so different kings and different heritages take over depending on the circumstance. I think that is an interesting perspective, and I think it's very difficult to be sure one way or the other, simply because, again, we go back to the fact that we're talking about sources that may or may not understand what they're talking about. And in this case, though, the, the Manau definitely are what we're talking about when we talk about Kanatha. They came from the Manau. Now, whether it's the Manau Gadothan or just the Manau, that's where the origins or the legendary origins of the kings of Gwyneth come from. So they may have owed their allegiance to the Gadothan because of them being close to them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are one and the same. Uh, the final kingdom is called the Regid, and Regid's a f both a fun name to say and an interesting kingdom because it is the least easy to understand. Uh, they think it includes parts of present-day Cumbria, though it's full-size, understandable dimensions, and really a lot of it is very vague. And it could have covered a vast area, or maybe not, depending on the circumstance and situation. Of course, Reket is claimed to be the kingdom in control of Cathreth, and that Urien, the king, was the king of Cathreth, was also the king of Reged at the same time. Now, that may be in a later interpretation. He may have been the king of one or the other, but not necessarily both. And it's him that leads the attack against Cathareth. And if Cathareth is in Anglican hands at the time, then what it is, it's a raid, or it could be an attempt to take back this place that was already taken. We just don't know. We don't have a good enough understanding of, of what's going on here, so it's hard to define and while Urien is one of these people who's very important to our understanding, he's, he's a king of some importance to the Old North, and one of the few that's mentioned, to be honest. Um, he is vague. We know he's a very strong figure. He's a very big character. It is said that his steady hand is what creates effectively the strength of Regid. And his life is seen as an important uh, parallel 
in describing how the Old North fought against the Anglicans. Some have argued in the past that he has relationships with Arthur. Again, that is speculation at best, and I wouldn't honestly want to make that comparison. I think that's a very difficult comparison to validate. Now, why is this significant? Why do we spend so much time and actually a full episode talking about the Old North? The Old North is significant to us from the fact that it is probably one of the legendary places that gave so much cultural understanding to the Welsh, especially the North Welsh. Because, and of course, a lot of our sources in this time period come from the North Welsh. And because of that, they have a massive amount of influence of what comes later. And in some ways, this is very similar to the ideas about Arthur. This is very similar to the ideas about Hengest and Horsa, and even going back to sort of the legendary ideas about how Britain was founded. These are kingdoms that, you know, it, to put it bluntly, they no longer exist, so you can idolize them. The rose-colored glasses will tell you that they were much to be delighted about, and they're almost an Atlantis-type situation for the British because they don't exist. There's no way to really know what they were like and whether or not they even existed in the way that they're defined. And all they really had was some of the stories, a bit of the history, maybe an annal or two. And there is some guess that actually a lot of the history Bretonium comes from that annal. But realistically, we know so little that we can't put down... You, it's hard to separate the legend from the fact. This goes back. A lot of things that happen in this period are like this in Britain, where there's so much legendary stuff that's included. And, and to be honest, one of the big reasons why people say that Arthur could be a Northern Brit as opposed to a Welsh Brit or a Cornish Brit is because of this combination of mythology and legend which is coming out of the North into the Welsh hands and actually survives to this day. Anurin, uh, Talzin, all of these big people and names that we'll talk about as time goes forward who are figures who are writing poetry or at least legendarily were writing poetry in this period typically come from the north or were in the north at some point. I mean, even there's arguments about where Patrick, St. Patrick came from, whether or not Padraig was a northern Brit or a, or a Welsh Brit. And so we don't even know those things for sure. And there's a lot of contention about this kind of stuff. So I think what we take from this is, is it has a massive influence and an importance to us. But we can't just accept it at face value that just because it is important, just because it is significant, that we can't, you know, judge from our own time period and kind of make some, some uh, educated guesses. And like I said, the four kingdoms that we mentioned are massive kingdoms at the time in the writings, but they may not have been the, even the biggest and most important. We may have lost those during time periods because certain viewpoints get overwritten because, you know, maybe this one was more literate than the other. Maybe this one had a few monks that wrote more stuff. Like, if you think about it, the reason why our Welsh history is so geared towards uh, Gwyneth is because a lot of the writings, a lot of the the stuff that we have comes about simply by default of the fact that they were the last ones to survive as an independent nation. Thus, they were able to continue to write an independent story 
for a lot longer than the others, and because of that, they control more of what the history is. And they controlled more of what the final version of history is, more to the point. And I think that's something to keep in mind. And while I think it's important to understand that influence and understand who they are, we have to continually question how much influence did they have. Was there legitimately... We know legitimately there was trade between the two, two people. We know there was contact. We know that they continued to work with one another in some way or fashion, that there was alliances between them. But there was also alliances between the Welsh kingdoms and, and the Mercians and the Welsh kingdoms and the East Angles. So it wasn't necessarily a British connection. It may have been as easily a non-British connection that aligned everybody. And the reality is, is what we'll see is the reason why these alliances suddenly become much more national-focused is because of the changes in the national front in the later Middle Ages and the understanding and the firming up of who really the power players are as England becomes England, as Wales becomes a version of Wales, as Scotland becomes Scotland. All of these things will then influence what the nationality perspective, the national perspectives are of each of these groups. And so we always through this lens, we have to examine, but I, I want to really say it, it's fascinating to kind of look at this early period because there's so many interesting things that go on. And I think we get to a better understanding because of it. Now, just to finish off, I just wanted to say thank you everyone for listening this week. I hope you have a great week. I hope you enjoy yourselves and, uh, We'll be back next week with a slightly different issue as we talk about our first anniversary. So I hope you guys are ready um, for that. I think that'll be really interesting. I've got an ex what I think is an exciting announcement. We'll see. Uh, and uh, please, if you can give us a rating and review on iTunes, that's always important for us. And please come check us out. We're going to have a live stream on June 10th uh, on the Saturday. And it is going to be a 12-hour live stream or fundraising for some members to go to an event. And uh, you are more than welcome to come along and check it out. And that's at twitch.tv forward slash distractions media. And until next time, everyone, bye. Edge of the Abyss Creations is a proud sponsor of the Welsh History Podcast, your one stop shop for unique jewelry, paintings, and other crafty creations. You can find us at facebook.com slash edge of the abyss one. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.